When you're ready to explore the capitals of the old world again, I think it's worth adding someplace a bit off the beaten path to your itinerary, like Zagreb in Croatia. Walk through the upper town in the evening when uh, the original 239 gas lights are lighted. It brings you right back into the 1800s. Visit one of Mississippi's most distinctive communities where there's more than antebellum mansions and garden parties beneath the surface. The more time I spent there, the more Natchez started to seem like a kind of microcosm of America when it comes to the legacy of slavery and race. And for a little nature therapy, did you know there are more national parks than there are states across the USA? They are literally our common ground in that they are owned and paid for by all of us. From the old world to the new south and picking your favorite national parks. Let's see what we can discover today on Travel with Rick Steves. Hey, I'm Rick Steves. In my latest book, For the Love of Europe, I share highlights of a lifetime of exploring Europe, my favorite experiences, sights, and encounters in 100 essays. Order your copy today at ricksteves.com. We'll find out what writer Richard Grant learned about the people of Natchez, including a few of its unforgettable characters, and why the town is often called Mississippi's quirkiest community. And TV reporter Connor Knight tells us what it was like to explore every national park in the U.S., from Acadia to Zion, in one year. That's in just a bit on today's Travel with Rick Steves. Let's start with a look at a European capital that's often overlooked by the beach crowds who enjoy Croatia's crystal-clear coastline but miss out on the scene in its capital city. It has a distinctively modern take on old-world charm, and it's just a few hours inland. To tell us about Zagreb, we're joined now by local guide Daria Gotic. She's joined by Ben Curtis, who writes about the Balkan region's elaborate history and thinks that Croatia's best period may be now. Daria and Ben, welcome. My pleasure. The same. Thank you for having us. Now, Daria, you're from Zagreb. You're a guide in Zagreb. A lot of Americans know Dubrovnik, and a lot of Americans know Venice, and a lot of Americans know Vienna. Zagreb is right there in the middle. What, yes. sh- what should we know about Zagreb? Yes, Zagreb is, I would say, the mix of uh, all these big capitals around yeah. and all these uh, much better known cities around. From historical perspective, uh, it was influenced by different cities and countries. So we have a little bit of all of that. So uh, what's an example? How is it a little bit of Austria? How is it a little bit of Italy? Uh, how so, is it a little bit of uh, the Slavic world? Mm-hmm. So um, Zagreb was a part of the Habsburg monarchy, mm-hmm. later Austro-Hungary, for a few hundred years. Mm-hmm. And uh, then architecture in town is very much what we would call Austrian or Central European, so the mixture of uh, Hungarian-Austrian. We don't have much Dubrovnik architecture, so that uh, is what Zagreb is completely different uh, about. Um, The cuisine? The 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 cuisine is uh, also very influenced by Austria, but not only that. We do eat strudels and uh, a lot of meat uh, and then potatoes. And uh, then, on the other hand, we also eat uh, a lot of pasta, pizza. We are very sensitive on coffee. And uh, then uh, we also have the Turkish influence, because Zagreb was also for a few centuries uh, just about 
45-50 miles uh, north from the Ottoman Empire border. Okay. It's a crossroads, really. It's a crossroads, yes. Now, Ben Curtis, you're an American who has a fascination and a deep interest in this part of Europe. How would you say Zagreb is unique? Zagreb is unique for being this gem of a central European capital. So everybody, kind of, as you're saying, they know Budapest, they know Vienna, they know Prague. Right. But here's this gem of a historical city that uh, hardly any Americans visit, right? And even though Zagreb star is rising on the tourism front these days, but you can go there and it's not going to be jammed with busloads of tourists from all over the place. You're not going to hear a lot of other North American accents. And you're going to be able to experience a city where the kind of fabric of locals, you're going to be sitting in a cafe with mostly other people from Zagreb, mm. and that's great. And it's hard to find that in Dubrovnik or in, in Vienna these days, if uh, yeah, you're in exactly. tourist areas. Yeah, exactly. So if you had two nights and, and one day in Zagreb, is there enough to keep you busy? Yeah, for sure. I think well, it's a, what would you do if, if you were going to show me around for a day? Yeah, it's a great kind of one-day stop if you're coming in and out for yeah. some of the coast. So Zagreb surprisingly has some of, I think, are the best museums of its kind in Europe. Now, they're quirky, right? You don't go to Zagreb for the Louvre or the Prado or something like that, but you go to, to Zagreb for these unusual small museums like the Museum of Naive Art, which is great, sort of not formally trained, perhaps painters, but really characteristic art with peasant themes. The famous one, which has kind of made uh, headlines all around the world, is the Museum of Broken Relationships, which is filled with these stories of couples who have broken up and the objects that they have uh, meant something to them, and they've given to this museum, and so it's just a really interesting, kind of poignant, sometimes hilarious trip through people's relationships. So when we think of this naive art, I love this idea because you go to most um, art galleries in Europe, and it's the opposite of naive art. It's this refined, fully embraced, uh, high society art. But naive art is, by definition, just unschooled mm-hmm. peasants or working people that just had a passion for painting. Exactly, but are often very, very talented, even if they didn't, you know, train at the academy or something like that, but they're expressing the lives and cultures and artistic visions of people from the rural areas. And It's a genius, really, an, an undiscovered genius that happened to come out of the farm community or something. Absolutely. I love that museum, by the way. That That's really one of the unique things in Europe, and it is in the capital of Croatia, Zagreb. Our guides to Zagreb, Croatia right now on Travel with Rick Steves are Balkan history expert Ben Curtis and hometown tour guide Darya Gotic. Darya, when we're thinking of Zagreb, we've got a mix of traditional and modern. If you want to find the modern, you can connect with young people. It's a university town. Where would you go and, and what would you do to be able to make friends with a Croatian in the capital city of Zagreb? Well, to sort of a mingle with uh, locals. You definitely have to go to cafes. Mm-hmm. We sit down, meet our friends, relatives, and uh, sort of uh, walk through the streets of the central part of town and uh, just see and be seen. That's the best place. Then uh, also, if you would like to see a little bit of modern culture, there are many street festivals, quite a few. So what's a good example of a festival that you would enjoy in mm-hmm. Zagreb? We have a street uh, art festival that's called Cest is the Best, which means street is the best. It's uh, every year in June, huh. end of May and beginning of June. It's um, different street artists from all over the world come, musicians, clowns, uh, oh, performers. Oh, so it's like uh, street performers. Yes. Oh, so, that's great. I've yeah. been to one of those in Bern in Switzerland, and it was one of the best festivals I've ever stumbled into. Yeah. So you could have that. You could look online and find out when uh, exactly. the, uh, what, what is it? Cest. 
is yeah. the best. Zest is the best. Now, the old town, the traditional town of Zagreb, is quite characteristic. It's been fixed up. It has traditional gas lights. Uh, walk us through the old part of town. What are we going to see and experience? Well, the oldest part of the city was uh, formed uh, in two little hills, and uh, those are capital, where in the late 10 hundreds, mm-hmm. a small town uh, bishop center was uh, formed, and that was the first settlement in nowadays uh, city of Zagreb. Till today, the architecture is saved, and sort of uh, the structure of that part of town is saved to look like a tiny little town. And architecture today is uh, mostly with private houses from 17th to 19th century. Mm-hmm. So this was the first settlement. Then in the 13th century, believe it or not, Mongolians arrived to Zagreb. And after Mongolian invasion, another small town was created, Gradic. That was a town of merchants and craftsmen and uh, called the Free Royal Town, uh-huh. with special privileges from the king himself. And um, they then developed the town that also later, especially from the 18th century on, became the political center of whole Croatia. The Croatian nation. Croatia's capital city, Zagreb, is our focus right now on Travel with Rick Steves. Our guests are local tour guide Darya Gotic, who specializes in English and German language tours of her hometown. She's joined by Balkan history expert Ben Curtis, whose books include A Traveler's History of Croatia. We have an email about Zagreb from Henry in Silver Spring, Maryland. And Henry writes, why aren't more people aware of this gem? We were stationed in Croatia for two years. It's a bargain. We're surprised more people don't visit this wonderful part of Europe from Slovenia all the way through Albania. So I think Henry is talking about Croatia in general. And let's talk about that just for a few minutes because Zagreb is, it's the urban reality of Croatia more than a resort you might find on the Dalmatian coast. From Zagreb, Ben, you could branch out and make a, a number of side trips or visit places. What else would you put on, a, on an itinerary to Croatia, assuming you started in Zagreb? Right, well, sort of leaving aside the coast, right? Because mm-hmm. I think the coast is really well covered. It's easy to get from Zagreb to the coast. You catch a flight or you catch a bus or there's even a train, and it's, that's logistically very easy. But there's other things to see in inland Croatia. Everybody mm-hmm. always heads for the water, but um, within easy reach of Zagreb, there's a beautiful Baroque town called Varaždin, which was once the capital. Varaždin. Varaždin, yeah. There's even smaller little towns very close to Croatia called Samobor, which is, you know, cute and kitschy, but an easy trip. And then you're also just a hop, skip, and a jump from, say, Ljubljana in Slovenia, or you can get on a train to Budapest, so it's actually very well connected. Because Zagreb really is a major, well, it's the, it's the major hub of transportation. We, we have to remember there's more to the world than tourism, and people are doing their business and so on, and the three big capitals there, Budapest, Ljubljana, and Zagreb, the capitals of Hungary, Slovenia, and Croatia, side-by-side, side, lots of trade, mm-hmm. lots of travel connecting, and easy connections that way. And, of course, right up to Vienna. Yep. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been talking about Zagreb, the capital of Croatia. Our guides have been Ben Curtis and Darya Gotic. And I'd like to just finish off with, with one moment that you think our listeners would enjoy when they are in Zagreb. Special moment. If you are with the family, then definitely the shot of the Zagreb canon every day at 12 o'clock. That's also something from the old days, yeah. but still existing as a tradition. If you like to walk, then definitely to walk through the upper town in the evening 
when uh, the original 239 gas lights are lighted and uh, it brings you right back into the sort of 1800s. Takes you back to the 1800s in Zagreb. And Ben? So I would say that one of the things, again, that makes Zagreb unique is it's a fantastic example of 19th century town planning and it has this absolutely wonderful thing called the Green Horseshoe, which is just this kind of connected series of parks, often with a museum or a gallery at the center, even a theater at the center, and stroll that string of parks, find somewhere nice to have a coffee, people watch, and you've got uh, you know the ambiance of Zagreb right there at your fingertips. And it sounds like enjoying a nice cup of coffee in a park watching the people go by is as Croatian or as Zagrebian as anywhere else in Europe. That's exactly right. Ben Curtis, Daria Gotic. It's nice to learn about a country that we don't know about, and it's nice to learn about a capital city that deserves a little more attention than a lot of times that it gets. Daria, if you could just tell us one phrase in Croatian that we should know when we travel there, what should it be? Maybe thank you. And what is that? That would be hvala. Hvala. But, All right. but I usually teach people to do it Zagreb way, and we say fala. F-A-L-A. Fala. Fala. And how can you say, in France they say bon voyage, have a good trip? We usually say dovigenia, which would mean uh, till next time. Till next time. Dovigenia. Dovigenia. Daria, Ben, thanks a lot. Fala. Thanks a lot. By the way, word is that Zagreb's Museum of Naive Art will be closed for renovations for the next few years. In the meantime, highlights from its exhibits are on display at a gallery just a block away. Up next, we get to know Natchez in Mississippi and explore the variety in America's national parks. It's Travel with Rick Steves. Even though he was raised in busy West London, author Richard Grant was finding life in Manhattan to be too confining. At a friend's house party in the Mississippi Delta, he decided on a whim to buy an old farmhouse nearby and start a new chapter in his life. He writes about that in his 2016 book, Dispatches from Pluto. Richard recently spent the better part of a year downriver, getting acquainted with a sometimes eccentric cast of characters in historic and tourist-friendly Natchez. He found it's where the New South is having to confront its Confederate past. Today, Natchez is the kind of town where it's said even the liberals are well-armed. Richard introduces us to the stories that lie deep in the soil of Natchez. In his latest book, it's called The Deepest South of All. True stories from Natchez, Mississippi. Richard, it's good to talk with you again. Hey, Rick. Good to be back on the show. So you're an Englishman, you lived in New York City, and then you settled in rural Mississippi. That's, that's an amazing mix, Britain, New York, and the Mississippi Delta. Before we get deeper into Natchez, give us a quick uh, comparison of these three worlds that you've lived through, and, and what do you enjoy most and what do you enjoy least about each of these? I've always kind of been an outsider. I was actually born in Malaysia and then uh, moved to London, England as a child. Mm-hmm and was told that this was home, but it never really felt like home. I was just um, hmm. looking in from the outside, and that's that's kind of carried on. I lived in Arizona for a long time, then I moved to New York, and then um, everything was going badly for me in New York, and then I got invited to Mississippi and saw this old farmhouse, five-bedroom farmhouse on 12 acres, and it was for sale, and it was for $130,000, and... Um, hmm. decided to take the plunge with my girlfriend and 
that farmhouse was in the Mississippi Delta, and while I was there, I got to hear about Natchez, which is a little bit south of the Delta, in the southwest corner of Mississippi on the on the river. And I found out that Natchez had once had more millionaires per capita than anywhere else in America, that it had the second largest slave market in the South. It, it had voted not to secede in the Civil War and re- refused to fight the Civil War. Hmm. And then I got wind that there was this kind of eccentric high society uh, taking place in the old mansions where people would dress up in hoop skirts and Confederate uniforms, which made it sound like a bastion of the Old South. And then I found out that Natchez had voted for a gay black mayor with 91% of the vote. And I was like, well, what is this place? And (laughs) how did it get this way? So you decided to check it out and write the book. So I started, I got a very good invitation, actually. um, There's a woman called Regina Charbonneau, who's a chef and a cookbook writer. And she's friends with the Rolling Stones and Lily Tomlin. And she used to have a club and a restaurant in San Francisco. Anyway, she's from Natchez and had moved back there, and she invited me to stay in her antebellum mansion, and that became my headquarters. She liked to tell people, yes, we keep an Englishman in the attic. Ah. I had this upstairs room. So she was a great entree to the the kind of world of um, tuxedoed balls and cocktail parties, and then... I also got to know there's a African-American man with an impossible name, but everyone calls him Sir Boxley. I got to be friends with him, and he's really kind of spearheaded this effort to make the town look at its history more honestly, to recognize that the town was built on slavery, and to include black history in the experience that they market to tourists. So it sounds like a fascinating divide between its white and black citizens and its uh, modern outlook and its and its Confederate heritage. Yeah, it's really it's really uh, just one contradiction after another. It seems like in some ways the Confederacy still lives and that's something that's perplexing I think to a lot of Americans is is the resilience of the I don't know what you'd call it but this Confederate pride. Yeah, because there's also kind of a, a fake thing in Natchez because you know, Natchez voted not to not to secede and didn't fight with the Confederacy in the Civil War. Right. And then in the decades after the Civil War, it became swept up in this um, kind of lost cause mythology and then kind of persuaded itself that it had been a staunch Confederate bastion. And then you have these ritualistic kind of theatrical plays there where they still dress up in Confederate officers' uniforms. You, you talked about the lost cause... Uh Yeah, this was this, um, the South persuaded itself after the Civil War that the Civil War had just been about states' rights and that the slaves had been happy and well-fed and that the war was not about slavery. And that kind of bundle of mythology is, is known in shorthand as the lost cause. So now that must be the way decent people can be proud of their Confederate fight in the Civil War. Yes, they, uh, I mean, it's by no means a universal belief amongst white Southerners, but among those that do believe it, yeah, it turns the war into something noble rather, rather than rather than an effort to, hmm. well, they wanted to expand slavery. Mm-hmm. This is Travel with Rick Steves. Richard Grant's our guest, and his book is The Deepest South of All, True Stories from Natchez, Mississippi. In his book, he introduces us to one of America's most unusual cities, even by Mississippi standards, and the people he got to know over a year of exploring their stories. His website is richardgrant.us. 
Richard, I want to get more into the the culture and this interesting sort of contradiction in Natchez. But first of all, I want to talk about the town as a tourist town. If you're going there as a tourist, what are the things people want to do? What what are the attractions from a tourism point of view? Well, traditionally, um, tourism in Natchez has been on the kind of gone with the wind model. You you go to visit the mansions. In the spring, there's something called pilgrimage whereby the owners of the antebellum homes dress up in period costumes and invite you to tour their homes. Now, that's still going on, but in recent years, um, there's been a big push to also visit the site of the second largest slave market in the Deep South, a place called Forks in the Road, um, which is an interesting and spooky and upsetting place to visit. There is a a reassessment of our fascination with this charming uh, antebellum culture, right? Uh, but And today, a lot of people don't even want to watch Gone with the Wind because there's so much embrace of racism. Is that... Yeah. Is, I mean, I think that, that that generation of tourists is starting to age out. And what, what you see in Natchez is a lot of Europeans that kind of do want the whole story. Okay, you know, so you'll still have the tableaus, but it'll be more honest showing the reality as well as the fantasy. Right. I mean, the whole town was built on trafficking slaves and huh. using enslaved labor in gigantic cotton plantations. And that's that's where all the beauty of the architecture comes from. But rather than covering that over, as they've done for a long time, the town is now assessing that more honestly. You can't you can't go to Natchez as a tourist now and not hear the, the full history. Boy, that's a big change because I bet a yeah, generation a ago you could change. go there and you could just think, oh, everything was just, uh, you know, um, a tea party. Yeah, I mean, it used the town slogan used to be where the Old South lives. Huh. Richard, when we think of old batches, you learned a lot from finding these different sort of uh, dimensions of the society. And you, you found these two, what, aristocratic kind of garden clubs. Uh, it was an interesting way to get into the... Uh, interracial complexities of it. You've got the Pilgrimage Garden Club and the Natchez Garden Club. Tell us about that. Okay, so we've we, we got to go back to the early 1930s here, where there was one Natchez Garden Club, and it came up with the idea of opening up these old antebellum homes to tourists and charging them money. And it was a roaring success. People came from all over the country to tour these, these antebellum mansions in Natchez. Then the club started feuding, and they split into two clubs, and that feud between the two clubs is, is still going strong today. Hmm. And they have sued each other, they've padlocked each other's homes, they've um, all sorts of scurrilous gossip has passed around the town. And you're either, yeah, very much you'd be kind of with one club or the other club. And they control most of the tourism in... Um, in the antebellum homes in Natchez. It's got a very matriarchal aspect to it, Natchez. The town has always had sort of strong women in charge. So, you know, when I think about it from a tourism point of view, it's it's like not only going to a place that's far away, but it's like going to a place that's got one foot in its deep past in a world that you couldn't imagine lives today and one foot in a very complicated but fluid kind of present. Yeah, it's it's also got a, a large gay population. It's very, very tolerant when it comes to being gay, especially by Mississippi standards. I mean, the the fact that Natchez voted in a gay black mayor with 91% of the vote is just, you tell that to other people in Mississippi and their jaw falls open. 
Richard Grant explores the charm and contradictions of Natchez, Mississippi, in his book, The Deepest South of All. Richard also won the Pat Conroy Southern Book Prize for his memoir, Dispatches from Pluto. It's about living in the Mississippi River Delta. We have links to Richard's website and his earlier appearances on Travel with Rick Steves at ricksteves.com radio. Okay, let's say I'm on vacation. I can fly in and I got two days and three nights and Richard Grant's my tour guide and I read your book and I'm just fascinated by it and I want to see the touristy stuff but I also want to get a little connection into the old Natchez you're talking about. What would we do in two days? What's our sightseeing agenda and, and who would you introduce me to? Okay, well, uh, sightseeing, I mean, the, the town itself, only 15,000 people now, and um, it used to be bigger, but it sits on this high bluff above the Mississippi River with just a breathtaking view. So you're definitely going to want to walk along the bluff and gaze out over the river. And that's, yeah, you look across the river and you see the flatlands of Louisiana where all the cotton plantations used to be that the Natchez built its wealth on. Mm-hmm. You're going you're gonna to want to hit a couple of... It, it has the most opulent antebellum mansions in the south. You're going to want to go to probably Stanton Hall, which is like walking into a time capsule of 1860. It occupies a whole city block and is, you know, not, not, not much shy of the White House when it comes to grandeur. And then you're going to want to go to Longwood, which is an octagonal mansion. It was being built during the Civil War and... The workers fled. They they hired workers from up north to build the thing, but they got scared of the war and they left and left all their tools behind. So it's unfinished, and they've kept it unfinished. It's one of the garden clubs owns it, and they have great guides. Will just tell you crazy stories one after another about these mansions. So I would say, yeah, Stanton Hall and Longwood would be the homes to visit. Um, you'd want to walk along the bluff and you want to visit the Forks in the Road slave market to see how all this grandeur and opulence was created. Uh, I would say you want to go to the African-American History and Culture Museum. The black history in Natchez is particularly interesting. For example, during the Civil Rights era, they did not go for peaceful, nonviolent protests. They had an armed paramilitary uh, group of activists called the Deacons for Defense, who succeeded in backing down the Klan and forcing the city to accept all their demands. So you can learn about that at the African American History Museum? Yeah. Wow, that is, I've never heard of that. Somebody who can stand up, like, in a let's brawl kind of way with the KKK. Yeah, it was it was working class black men. A lot of them had been soldiers in World War Two, and they just rejected the idea of uh, that, would be, that would be sort of a jolt themselves. for the KKK. All of a sudden, somebody's yeah, it, hitting back. It worked. It worked. Oh. The, the Klan backed off. You know, when we think antebellum, that, of course, means from the culture before the Civil War, right? Yes. And that, it survives. It survives 150 years later. It's sort of like miraculous that anything survives, considering all the the change and all the devastation of that war and everything. But it, if you want to see antebellum, it sounds like Natchez is with this strange wealth with more millionaires per capita than any other city and with mansions that apparently rival the White House. It's quite an astounding attraction just from a straight sightseeing point of view. And then in the last generation with all of the 
modern sensibility about racism and our and our national sort of struggle with racism to have the the dual narrative approach where you you see the the mansions and the plantation you know fantasy life and gone with the wind and at the same time you see the slave markets and you, and you learn about the realities it sounds like you could you could do a whole college course on american history right there in natchez I think so. I think, I mean, you know, obviously I became thoroughly interested in it mm-hmm. to the point where I, I spent a couple of years there and wrote a book about it. But uh, when I first went there, it seemed it seemed eccentric. It seemed like incredibly Southern in good ways and bad. And very, I mean, people are very gracious and hospitable and very funny storytellers. But then the more time I spent there, the more Natchez started to seem like a kind of microcosm of America when it when it comes to... Hmm the legacy of slavery and race. It seemed like a kind of um, distillation of, of, of all America's conflicts and troubles around the topic of race. They're kind of distilled in a way in Natchez. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Richard Grant, and Richard is the author of The Deepest South of All, True Stories from Natchez, Mississippi. There's more about his work and travel articles he's written at his website. That's richardgrant.us. Richard, if you think about, you've, you've lived in New York, what do you think people from north of the Mason-Dixon line get wrong about a place like Natchez? What, what, what's going to just jolt us? What do we need to understand? I don't think people up north understand how close black and white people are, how, how many close relationships, friendships, quasi-familial relationships happen between black and white. I mean, there was a woman in the book, she told me, she said, you know, there's white men down here who would who would take a bullet for their closest black friend, but they'd have also reached for their pistol if he tried to marry their sister. Whoa, so it, racism down there can, can be, can be, it can be very close, like love can be a part of a relationship that also has prejudice in it. It's much more complicated than racism up north. It's a brain twister. And the more you know yeah. about it, the more you want to know about it. Or like a lot of these, you know, a lot and, and the kind of well-to-do white people, you know, a lot of them had uh, black women who sometimes nursed them and certainly raised them. Right. So you had these very, very close relationships that, you know, continued. But even though they were so close that, that they would be really awkward for them socially to eat dinner together at the same table. Richard, our country is going through some amazing, uh, you know, just heartache just grappling with our the, the the structural racism that we've we've accepted for so long and now you know with the, all the demonstrations that are happening and so on we're raising awareness of, of difficult realities you've learned a lot in Natchez and I, I would imagine as you've seen the demonstrations recently in our country you must draw from your experience what what can your time in Natchez share with us to teach us in the rest of the country about racism well, I mean, one thing about Natchez is, is that the link between race-based slavery before the Civil War and modern-day racism is just completely undeniable. You've got the slave markets there, you've got the mansions. You've also got black people, light-skinned black people, who can point at the white family who lightened their skin tone. It's like it's, it's all on a kind of a, a micro level. Hmm. You know, American... Racism stems from the fact that race was used to justify American slavery. It all flows from that, and that becomes very, very clear in Natchez. 
And these these conversations about race that are taking place now, finally, uh, in the rest of the country, Natchez has been having those conversations quite intensively for the last 15, 20 years. Richard Grant, thanks for writing The Deepest South of All and, and sharing lessons with us uh, about these true stories from Natchez in Mississippi. Come down and have a bowl of gumbo at Regina's Kitchen with me sometime. I'm there. Thanks, Richard. There's more from Richard Grant on what he learned about Southern history and Natchez in an extra to today's show. You can hear it from the radio page of our website at ricksteves.com radio. TV correspondent Connor Knighton tells us about his year exploring each one of America's national parks. That's next on Travel with Rick Steves. When his personal life started to spin out of control, Connor Knighton decided it was time to catch his breath, and he did that by visiting what people have called America's best idea. His bosses at CBS Sunday Morning agreed that a TV series on each one of the U.S. national parks would be worth the year it would require to visit them all. Connor joins us now to tell us what he discovered about America at each of its national parks. He writes about it in his book, Leave Only Footprints. Hey, thank you so much for having me. Give us kind of the, the backstory to your book before we get into the parks. What, what was the impetus for the book, and how did it relate to your personal life and to the CBS series that, that you work on Sunday morning? So I actually was was about to get a Rick Steves book and head to Europe. My plan for that year was very different. I was engaged to be married. And then in the middle half of 2015, uh, my then fiance called off the engagement. Uh, I was, you know, adrift. I was very sad at the time and, and sort of in a self-imposed kind of self-quarantine where I was sitting around the house, you know, this future that I thought I had lined up for me had disappeared. And my friends were telling me, you got to get back out there. I think I overcorrected in that department. Uh, I really got out there, really got a change of scenery. I'd seen that it was going to be the 100th anniversary of the National Park Service in 2016. And I thought, well, that could be a cool series of stories for Sunday morning. It could also just be exactly what I needed uh, in my own life. And so I pitched my bosses in New York to do a series of stories on the parks. They said yes, not to all of them. They said that we'd maybe do a third for the broadcast. And then at that moment, I decided, you know what, I'm going to go all in, make up the difference and see those other two thirds on my own. So I gave up my place, hit the road and, and went out to go see them all in a year. Boy, talk about a crossroads in your life from one thing that you thought was going to happen to something entirely different and then making a bonus out of it, taking a year off, visiting all the parks. Now, the parks are famously called America's best idea. Why do they say that? And, and do you agree after visiting them all? I do. And actually, when that phrase gained popularity, it was in relation to Europe in a lot of ways. Some of the most beautiful places in Europe were privately owned or at some king's courtyard or whatever. And uh. in the U.S., places like Yellowstone, Yosemite, there was this idea that they should be for everyone. They should not be only for the rich. They should be accessible by all people owned by the people of the United States. And so those parks, which began with just a handful and, and then have included now 400 some park sites, everything from rivers to seashores to national monuments. That idea is uniquely American and now has since been replicated in countries across the world. And it made me surprisingly proud to be an American. It's, it's tough not to stand in those places, right. looking at one of those vistas and not to realize that you're a co-owner of some of the best real estate in the world. Oh, I love that concept, a co-owner. Now, as co-owners, I would want the parks to be well-managed. I want them to be well-run. 
You visited all of them over the course of a year. When you come away from that, did you feel like they're in good hands? Uh, what did you take away about how they're doing, how they're being run? Well, so on a personal level, I've yet to meet a boring park ranger. I'm sure they're out there, but to a person, everyone I met was there for the right reasons. It's not a job you do for the money. I mean, you're, you're a government worker in some very remote areas. They're there because they love that work. That said, I don't think that there is a park that would say that they're appropriately funded. There's a multi-billion dollar backlog of maintenance in the parks, roads and trails and, and all sorts of things that need to be done. So on that level, we could prioritize them more from a funding perspective. But the attitude there on the ground is, I think, the appropriate attitude. And I would think that the Park Service is a mission-driven organization where people at every level of the employment there have this love of nature and so on. Did you find that? I did, yeah. It's in a way almost like you're in a, a nature army where you sort of do a tour of duty. And since I was on my own tour that year where I'm hitting many parks, I was surprised how good I got at the name game where I could go to Virgin Islands National Park and have a ranger tell me she used to work at Congaree in South Carolina. And instantly I would know someone that she knew because the park rangers just kind of cycle through uh, different parks. But yeah, they all seem mission driven. It may take a while if your life's dream is to work at the Grand Canyon. Well, so is everyone. So you may yeah. have to put, it, put in some time at a, <laughs> at a small museum in Philadelphia or something before you get there. Um, but yeah, it did feel very mission driven. And you feel that in the visitors too. You, you feel this kinship with folks who you're out on the trail with where you have something in common with them. You have both chosen to spend your leisure time in this protected place at a time when there are so many other things competing for your attention. You start to feel mm -hmm. that kinship with other visitors in the parks. And when you say something in common, when you think about our country today, there's a lot of division. We're quite a fractured country at this time. And if we go to the parks, that's something we might have in common. What's your takeaway just on, on how parks can help our country unify in a time when we're searching for common ground? Yeah, I mean, they are literally our common ground in that they are owned and paid for by all of us. And those divisions that can seem so stark everywhere else disappear when you're standing on the rim of the Grand Canyon or plodding mm -hmm. through the, the great sand dunes of Colorado. It, they also enjoy overwhelming levels of support. You know, there are, there are some political issues with the parks, mm -hmm. whether it's mining or hunting on different land. There are controversies for sure, but mm -hmm. you say some of these places and everyone loves them. <laughs> and, and that's not, what else can we say that about? Yeah, they bring folks together and you don't feel those divisions enough. That said, there are some issues with diversity and, and access in the parks where mm -hmm. it's not as for everyone as the mission would seem to make you believe, but, but they're working on that. And when you're standing on the, the edge of a canyon and you're gazing out at that and you see what we have to be thankful for and what we have in common, you also may be reminded that this was Native American property first. What was your experience on, on how the parks are acknowledging that? I mean, now when you go to Canada, you're constantly reminded about First Nations and so on. Is there a new awareness in this time when we're trying to be more mindful of diversity and, and respecting different peoples that we acknowledge that this is generally Native American property before it was National Park? Yeah, I mean, it's a belated acknowledgement for sure, but the parks are starting to shift those narratives where that is a, a story, whether it's just putting an exhibit in the visitor center or incorporating it into a ranger program or providing access for religious practices for tribes that are in that area, that's all getting better. But yeah, it's the story of of so many of these places. By the way, it's the story of so many of our cities as well. It's just the parks are the last places left that might look like 
the same land hundreds and thousands of years ago. Um, it, it's tough to keep that story top of mind when you're wandering around Cleveland, but when you're in mm -hmm. wandering through Moab uh, near Arches National Park, you can think about who used to live there. And sometimes you see visual reminders. Capitol Reef National Park in Utah has petroglyphs and you're standing there as I'm feeling a religious experience and then seeing these paintings that were most likely some sort of religious expression of a culture thousands and thousands of years older is a powerful experience to have that. Connor Knighton is our socially distanced home studio guest right now on Travel with Rick Steves. He writes about what he discovered in a year visiting each one of the U.S. national parks in his book, Leave Only Footprints. Connor also has produced the On the Trail and Island Hopping travel reports for CBS Sunday Morning. His website is connorknighton.com. So, Connor, when you put together the book, Leave Only Footprints, which covers all of the parks from Acadia to Zion, uh, you didn't group it geographically. You grouped it by themes. And I've seen different books on the national parks, but I haven't seen it done this way. What was your point? Why did you end up grouping it this way? Well, I realized one advantage I had in having seen all of them and not just some of them is that I had this perspective where I was able to see the threads that tie these wildly different places together. So Kobuk Valley National Park, north of the Arctic Circle, and Cuyahoga Valley National Park, right outside Cleveland, are far away, and the topography is very different. But both had stories to teach me about living off the land and the importance of food. Uh, I grouped some parks together based on lessons of forgiveness or God. And a chronological journey, when I look back on the year, I don't think of it that way. Also, my chronology was very confusing because I was sometimes, because I was producing these segments for the show, I was circling back. So I think it would just, for anyone who is semi-familiar with a map, it would have been a very confusing chronological, like, why is this guy going back to Great Smoky Mountains? Didn't he pass that in February? And the truth is I did, but I, the piece I wanted to do there, which was on this cemetery that provides access once a year, that happened in June. So I had to hightail it back from Mount Rainier and a week later go all the way back to Great Smoky Mountains. So it was a lot of crisscrossing the country. You know, Connor, I know from my experience that uh, you can take two people to the same place and they can have two different experiences depending on what's going on inside of them and, and what attitude they bring and what understanding they bring to that site or that experience. You brought your own emotional and, and psychological baggage with you to these parks. What can you advise people who are going to be going to a park anywhere to get the most out of it or to get out of their comfort zone or, or be transformed. Isn't it a good part of that? Not how great the park is, but how able we are to give ourselves up to it. Absolutely. I think uh, a good example of that is Isle Royal National Park off the, the northern coast of Michigan. That's a park where the scenery isn't so stunning. I'm sure Michiganders would <laughs> disagree with me, but it's part of it is how isolated you are at that park. That was the experience that I took away. It's a park in the lower 48, at least, with extremely long levels of visitation. So the Grand Canyon, for example, might have like a three and a half hour average visit. It's like three and a half days or something thereabouts for Isle Royal, because once you get there, which requires a seaplane or a boat, you stay there. And so that experience of being completely disconnected, both from the land and also from cell phone service, taking everything you need on your back, hiking for four days in a loop around the island, mm. that's an experience that's different than maybe a must-see attraction like the main arch and arches. There's no must-see attraction at Isle Royal, but it, in a way it was a more transformative experience for me because of, of how alone I was at that park. You know, you've got a, a line in your book called Missing the Forest for the Tweets. 
And, uh, you know, it's a quandary. As, as a tour guide, I know people are looking at their cell phone too much. They're just they've got their selfie stick up and they're not even in the moment. Did you notice that this is a challenge for people who are trying to appreciate parks in our country? It is. It's also a challenge for the parks themselves as they struggle with how connected they want to be. You know, does that mean having Wi-Fi at the visitor center? Does that mean blanketing the entire park with a Verizon tower? The upside of that connectivity would be search and rescue becomes much easier when you can call for help. The flip side of that one is that maybe people are more likely to take trips they shouldn't take because they think that they're just a 911 call away from that rescue. So it's this real delicate balance of encouraging access, especially among younger people. If the parks aren't popular with today's 20-somethings, then when those 20-somethings are 50-somethings and, and are prioritizing where to spend their money, take their families on vacation, who to vote for, why would they prioritize places they've never been or experienced? And sadly, if you want to get a 20-year-old to come to a park, sometimes that means ensuring them that they can check Instagram while they're there. And so I am of the camp more of trying to shut off as much as possible, but I mm -hmm. try not to be too judgmental about that because mm -hmm. that experience of taking a picture and posting it for your friends, friends back in a city who have maybe never seen a place like that, that can be important too. That's um, true. That advertising so is a beautiful I, thing. It does. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then the flip side of that is sometimes it drives people to a destination that maybe can't handle that influx of people. There are some places in parks that used to just be known to the, the most in the know guides and hikers. And now when there's a geotagged coordinate for that, everybody huh. tries to go to that Vista and that can sometimes damage those resources. So it's a balance. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Connor Knight. Connor spent a year visiting each of America's national parks in order to create a series of video travel reports that aired on CBS Sunday morning. He takes us behind the scenery and he writes about what each one showed him in his book, Leave Only Footprints. We have a link to Connor's work with this week's show. It's at ricksteves.com slash radio. Connor, you set out and you had to visit all the parks because that was your goal. I imagine some of the parks you were eager to see and others you were thinking, well, I got to go there because it's on the list. What were the surprising parks? Which ones that you visited were actually more rewarding or exciting than you expected? Well, I was surprised when I looked down that list when I was first conceiving of this, how many I hadn't heard of. I just kind of assumed that like they would all be recognizable names. And in a way, it's what convinced me that it would be a good idea for a series and then ultimately a book is that how many of them were complete unknowns to me. So Great Sand Dunes National Park in Colorado, one of the quietest places in the country, this bit of the Sahara that seems like it was transposed onto the Rocky Mountains. Mm. Never heard of that place before. Mm -hmm. Many of the remote Alaskan parks, uh, Gates of the Arctic, Katmai, Lake Clark, I wasn't familiar with any of those. But I'd say Biscayne National Park was a nice surprise for me because that's a park just south of Miami. You can see the Miami skyline from the visitor center. And really, if you were to look out at that park, it doesn't look like much. It looks like the ocean. It looks like much of South Florida. But the surprise is waiting for you just beneath the surface of that ocean. Mm. And so at that park, I went on an underwater trail. I got scuba certified and went diving down to these shipwrecks. The park has made these interpretive signs like you'd see on the side of a trail, except it's on the bottom of the ocean where it's this rock and it says, this was the Lugano. It sank in 1903. And it gives you this whole description. And you would have no idea if you just popped in and looked out at the water that something like that was there. That's a, a park in Florida. And I'm here on the West Coast and we know and are so excited about our great national parks in the West and in the Rockies. There are a lot of parks in the East. Can you just quickly flip through a few of them? Just 
so we can give the, the parks in the east their due uh, attention. What are some of the highlights of parks in the eastern United States? Well, and what you're asking has been basically asked since the 1930s, where folks in the East initially felt like they'd gotten uh, the short shrift when it came to national parks. So many of the iconic ones are in the West, um, Yosemite, Yellowstone, Arches, all of those, Glacier. So the East got their parks a little later, but Mammoth Cave National Park in Kentucky, there's Acadia in Maine, which is where I started my year. That's a spectacular one. There's a lot of smaller ones. Part of that is that the East was settled first by Europeans. And so Mm. a lot of the land was taken up by towns at that point. But uh, Congaree National Park in South Carolina is the last little bit left of the old growth bottomland hardwood forest. Uh, Looks kind of swampy and spooky. That's there. The most well-known is probably the Everglades, also in Florida. And then there's Dry Tortugas National Park, which is technically an Eastern park, but it's a good 60 miles past the edge of, of Key West this little island out in the middle of the ocean. You know, one thing I felt that you have a particular interest in is trees, majestic trees, and and how they actually relate to us. You mentioned every tree is a witness tree. They see how we spend our time on earth and what we take and what we give. Uh, You saw the world's oldest tree in the Redwood National Park, or the tallest anyways. Talk a bit about trees and, and the power of trees that you can gain an appreciation for when you visit the parks. Yeah, I mean, some of those I started calling celebrity trees because the parks have many of the superlative types of trees. So whether that's the largest, which is the General Sherman tree at Sequoia National Park, the tallest, which is in the Redwoods, and we don't know where it is because scientists realize that, I mean, someone knows where it is, but visitors don't. Mm -hmm. Um, They were afraid that if people flocked to that specific tree, the roots would be damaged. It would just be too much of a scene. But every redwood is so much taller than any tree that you would see on the East Coast. Most of the the iconic trees are clustered in the West. It's the only part of nature that I feel like sees me back. You know, I can walk by a beautiful mountain and I can I can go along the banks of a beautiful river. But when I'm underneath a canopy of those trees, I feel like they are looking at me. I don't know if that's I've seen too much Wizard of Oz. (laughs) I like that. No, I feel like they see me back. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been talking with Connor Knight. His book is Leave Only Footprints, My Acadia to Zion Journey Through Every National Park. Connor, thanks so much for sharing your experience. And can we just wrap up this conversation with a, a takeaway? You visited 59 national parks. Most of us would just love to visit a handful. How can we get the most out of our park experience? And, and why does that matter? I mean, I think for me, it was appreciating the scenic diversity of our country. The fact that in one nation, we've got the deserts of Joshua Tree, the glaciers of Kenai Fjords, the murky swamps of the Everglades, and the rocky coast of Acadia. That that is all in the U.S. really gave me an appreciation for these treasures that are in our backyard, and also a time away from technology, a time to physically challenge yourself. I mean, there's a lot of benefits that that you get when you're out there on the trail and a camaraderie with other folks. So it was the most scenic and the most transformative year of my life. And, and it will affect my thinking going forward. And uh, you visited them all in a year. I think we've got a lifetime of opportunities when we think of all the wonders our national park system has to offer. A much saner way to experience them, by the way. <laughs> I would recommend the lifetime approach versus the year approach. Very good. Thanks, Connor. Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington, by Tim Tatton and Kazmura Hall. We get website support from America Kipnikun, promotion support from Sheila Gerzoff, and our theme music is by Jerry Frank. 
Special thanks to our colleagues at Arizona Public Media for studio help this week, and to Isaac Kaplan-Wolner for setting up our first remote home studio recording sessions. You can hear more from Richard Grant on our website at ricksteves.com radio. And we'll look for you again next week with more Travel with Rick Steves. Hey, I'm Rick Steves. In my latest book, For the Love of Europe, you can savor Europe's most exciting experiences and sights through a hundred of my favorite travel stories. Imagine hanging from an alpine ridge, dancing at a Turkish circumcision party, and swinging with a bell ringer in a medieval church spire. You can order your copy of For the Love of Europe at ricksteves.com.